Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, so, real quick announcement. I know I've been saying it pretty regularly, but we're getting close. Uh, the last weekend of April, I will be at the International Christian Film Festival in Orlando. I will have a table there. I will also be doing a lecture uh, Friday morning at 10 a.m. Not necessarily my preferred time of day. It remains to be seen if anyone will be there. Uh, but you could be there. So check it out. Uh, International Christian Film Festival. Uh, you can look it up. You know, you can Google it or you can uh, click on the link uh, at uh, in the post of this episode. Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm also a little bit nervous, but uh, it, if, if everything goes well, then uh, then hopefully the lecture will be uh, satisfactory because I, I will be playing some clips and anytime you get, you know, AV involved, ugh, it can it's it's nerve wracking uh, because my lecture is not necessarily based on those clips, but I, a good a significant portion of it is dedicated to what is seen in the clips as an example of a larger thing I'm talking about. So uh, so let's hope that goes well. Uh, I think that is about it as far as announcements. Uh, but yeah, check that out because I really do want people there and I'm excited uh, to be doing this and I uh, wanted to say thank you to everybody uh, associated with the festival for uh, letting me be a part of it. Um, okay. But what are we talking about today? We are talking about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. We're talking about all three films that came out 2001, 2, and 3. Uh, but I'm not going to do it alone. You know, this, is a, this, this, this series is all about fellowship. It's all about community. It's all about teamwork. So it'd be, it'd be silly and counterintuitive for me to talk about this by myself. So I thought I should bring somebody in. And if there's one person that I know knows n more about Lord of the Rings than anyone else... It's Robert Hornack. Robert, how you doing? It's such a lie. <laughs> um, I was going to say, let me be your Samwise Gamgee, but, but or is it Ganges? Gamgee. Gamgee. See, yeah. already. Yeah. Let me yeah, be your Sam. I should have just left it there. There we go. But uh, I, 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 I've seen the movies, of course, and I love the movies. They're fantastic. Mm. I would not say that I'm an expert at all in any way. Yeah, I was overstating because Robert uh, is is nervous that... Uh, I'm and, not nervous. And I understand why uh, I am a little bit as well, because this is, not merely because of the movies, but because of the books, this is a, a, a mythology and a lore that people know a lot about and have known a lot about for 60 years, mm -hmm. uh, 60 plus years. And so... Uh, I'd so say that the fanhood is is uh, enthusiastic to say the least. Sure. And so to get stuff wrong is like you just feel like you're exposing yourself. I know people that have read the books many times. Yeah. Not just the movies. I've seen the movies many times. And even even the extended cut, you know, that's that's twelve hours, twelve plus hours. If you were to watch all three in a row, which I have done twice, um, and but that's still. That'll get you, I don't know, if you were to read for 12 and a half hours straight, that'll get you 100, 150 pages, maybe right. more, maybe 200 pages into the first book. Uh, that Nowhere is near Mordor. What was that? Nowhere near Mordor. Nowhere near. You're not even close to that giant spider. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so... It's intimidating. We're not going to be really delving deep into the world of Middle-earth. We'll be talking about, you know, the the characters and the stuff that we respond to and that sort of thing. If you're looking for a really in-depth, nerdy discussion about Lord of the Rings, uh, as imagined by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, this is not the show for you. This is more of a general... And I can t I can speak fairly in-depth about it because I've seen it many times. I believe you. But, um, 
but not compared to some, no way, yeah. not even close. Um, well, I feel better now. Okay, good. Because uh, you enjoy, is lifted. Because you enjoy these movies. I know. Oh, yeah. I know people that don't. I see. I don't understand. Oh, on what? Why? I mean, they're fantastically <laughs> made, and they're engaging on character level and visual level. I think. Why would someone not like it? I think because these, there's a, there's an epic quality to the film. To, to the films, but also there's an epic quality to almost every scene. And mm. there, there are times when I will watch the, the movies and there's just the way the characters talk and the mm. way that the actors perform, you know, if either something is really big or it's spoken about in a, in a specifically hushed tone, yeah. um, where everything is just, and there are lines that make me roll my eyes. Uh, most of Legolas's lines make me roll my eyes. Like what? Um, where it's just like, it's like, like the blood moon rises, blood has been spilled here this night. And some oh. of it has to do with the fact that Orlando Bloom is not that strong of an actor. Hmm. You know, uh, Ian McKellen, I, I buy everything he's selling. Sure. Uh, and so, but there, but also there are things that Aragorn says and just, you know, big proclamations constantly. And there are people just that don't have that level, uh, that don't have a, a patience for that level of like melodrama. Uh, my friend Tim, uh, mm-hmm. I remember, said something disparaging about the movies. I mean, he enjoyed them. I think I don't mm-hmm. think anyone that sits through the whole thing, you know, you're gonna you're gonna give up on it at a certain point. But right. He watched the whole thing. At the end, he said, "If if I have to see Elijah Wood's giant eyes well up with tears one more time, yeah, <laughs> yeah." So it's that kind of thing where it's, you, there's only so much of this kind of thing that you can ingest in one sitting. Imagine if the uh, yeah. if the extended cuts were the theatrical cut. Oh my! It might be too like in the theater. It might be a bit much. I mean, I would still love it, uh, but he's absolutely right. And not even so much for me, it's not so much uh, Elijah Wood's eyes as it is him standing and then turning around. Like he's got his back to the camera and then he'll turn back around because Sam has said something and he looks back around with a certain type of earnestness. Mm-hmm. Earnest, uh, that's the word. But then I, I cannot... I feel bad speaking negatively because for the most part, I love these films and viewing the trilogy as a whole. It's one of my favorite things of all time. It's, it's firmly in my top hundred and it's not going anywhere. Uh, but when you see it as, you know, just because you love something doesn't mean that you, uh, are uncritical of it. Right. Um, and there are, I'd say of the, cause I'll be talking primarily about the extended cuts. Cause at this point, that's what I've seen most. Um, so of the 12 and a half hours of the extended cut, I'm pretty sure that like three of those are just shots of people opening their hands, revealing the ring, uh, just over and over again. It's just, I wish this was a video podcast cause it's just like a close up shot of somebody's hand and then, Oh my gosh, what's in it? It's the ring. Yeah. We know it's the ring. Yeah. We know it's going to be there. Everyone gets their chance to open their hand with a ring in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If anybody who's anybody motion. in this, if, if somebody doesn't get a chance to do that, then it means they're a minor character. Right. Um, so, yeah, so there are things that are, and you know, I, a moment ago we used the word earnest and this is a, these are movies that are earnest. There's no irony. There's no cynicism. They are completely committed to this world. And when you're dealing with fantasy and melodrama and you have an earnest, uh, and you're approaching them earnestly, I think some people will be like, oh, Come on, guys, you don't have any room for a sense of humor. And the type of humor that you will find in it is a very, is a kind of family friendly, like, exactly. oh, look at these 
scamps. Look at these wacky hobbits. They're always eating and stuff. It just, it's very, it's friendly, uh, observational type humor from yeah. one character to another. It's not like, yeah. um, necessarily like take a, take a, a step back from what's going on and make some sort of, it doesn't even have to be a snide remark, but, but just some kind of commentary on what's happening as yeah. a story, which is what irony does. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, you're you're a goofball. I love hanging out with you on this journey. Ha ha ha. Yeah, if you were to step back for one moment and look at the silliness mm-hmm. of all of this, um, guy with a wizard hat. That's what you what you zero in on. There is so much more to this. Uh, to so many more ridiculous things. But yeah, just like all these long flowing robes and just the way characters sure. talk. I mean, so David and I did a, a we did a commentary track for all three theatrical versions of the films. Um, and there are certain things that like, uh, at one point, um, uh, <laughs> Gandalf calls his horse shadow facts. Uh, he calls it out of like the woods and it comes running and it's like a slow motion shot of this admittedly beautiful horse. And he's like, ah, shadow facts, the Lord of all horses. And I was like, what <laughs> is that? Like, is that in the book? Is that lore? Are there, do other horses bow to shadow facts or is this just a figure of speech? But then also when Legolas sees shadow facts, he says, Oh, this is, I forget what it, I don't know all the terms. Sorry, everybody. But he says like, he goes, he goes, I think this is a certain type of horse or whatever. He goes, he goes, unless my eyes have been bewitched by some spell. I remember being like, misplaced. I remember being like, Afraid. come on guys. Unless my eyes have been bewitched by some spell. bewitched by some spell, it's like okay, do my eyes deceive me? That's basically what they're saying. But I remember thinking like, okay, so even if it's a turn of phrase, which frankly, if you're going to sell it as that, maybe I'd like to hear it a couple more times. But I did have this thought: it's like, unless my eyes have been bewitched by some spell, and then someone says, I don't see anything. It's like, oh no, my eyes have been bewitched <laughs> by some spell. What what do I do? All I know is how, all I know how to do is shoot a bow and arrow. Do I shoot one into my own eye? Um, but that's the thing is like yeah. they need to commit 100% and even to the, the lines that are kind of silly and overwrought and that kind of thing. Well, I, I have to say, I, I just took, cut you off. I apologize. Uh, I I don't like fantasy films. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, pre-show, we were talking about genres that we do or don't like and yeah. what we would defend and what we might not defend. Well, fantasy films are hard for me to defend for all the reasons we're talking about now. Yeah. You know, the, the, the names, it's like, I can't remember anybody's name because mm-hmm. they're these like, just like just tossed together vowels and consonants. Yeah. Um, the, the, the kind of things that they're saying are like over the top, um, f- florid sort of, you know, yeah. kind of things on very simple things. You know, they, they make yeah. them big by the words that they're attaching to them. I don't know. It just there's something about it that's hard to get into as a as a story. Yeah. But if I can elevate Lord of the Rings back to where it belongs, which is like way up here, mm-hmm. um, the movie does those things so well. Um, and I say the movie because it almost feels like one giant movie. It does these things so well and with such earnestness yeah. and such uh, just the, the highest level of filmmaking skill possible at the time that you can't not look away. I mean, you can't look away. That's the thing. If they were to if they were to undercut any of the sincerity that we're talking about, the sincerity that will sometimes make me roll my eyes, but if they were to undercut it, then they would actually, for a moment, take me out of the world. And that is a much bigger crime than mm. saying some cheesy lines from time to time. Because 
the thing that keeps me coming back to Lord of the Rings over and over is just how complete this world is. And it looks like a world that we could exist in, but it's also so different, whether it be walking around in the Shire or the forest or the various cities. Like, it's just so, you know, we've seen pictures of castles in our world, in our reality, and they look like the castles that we'll see in Lord of the Rings. But it's just twisted to the point, like when you look at the city of Gondor, like the white city, and you see the way the castle and the way the city is set up, you just look at that and think like, how did they build that? Like that's, it feels like this is not the most practical way to build a city, (laughs) but then you, but it still looks like a thing that could exist, but there's just such a majesty to it. It's, it's. It feels like the world feels like dirty and muddy where it rains and people have to deal with the elements, but there's still all of this in service of like a greater magic and majesty. And, you know, to betray that by having someone say something a little bit ironic or knowing, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take the trade off. Because know? suddenly it makes you feel like the filmmakers don't take it seriously yeah. either or that they're hedging just a little bit it's and like yeah you gotta do it with total commitment yeah. yeah that's 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 perfect like if you poke one hole you know it's not like uh it's not like a dam where one little hole is like okay there's just a little stream of water it's not perfect if th- this if you poke it if you have even a a, a glimpse of irony the whole thing comes apart mm-hmm. um and and yeah the reason that i the, the way some people talked about Avatar, that they that they loved Pandora and they wished that Pandora actually existed so that they could go there. Um, I never got that feeling. Um, but Lord of the Rings, I do get that feeling. Mm. I want to go and like live in the Shire. I would love oh, yeah. to go, you know. And I did uh, about three years ago. Um, three years ago? No, four years ago now. Uh, Jen and I went to New Zealand. Mm. And so we went on the Lord of the Rings tour outside of, of Wellington where you see some of the locations. And admittedly that does, uh, it does ground things a little bit more when you realize that Helm's Deep is just a quarry. Sure. Uh, and you're like, Oh, this is, I don't see much of Helm's Deep. Is there here. stuff still set up from the movie there or is it just the location no. itself? No, just the location Mountain itself. Side. But then there are some, then, you know, we went into like a forest area mm-hmm. and there are some things where you can absolutely see, mm-hmm. like there's a scene in the first film where the, the four hobbits like duck into this little hole as one of the black riders walks by above right. them. That little hole is it's there. Right there. Huh. Now it's in the movie, it's next to a giant tree. The tree was fake and they, they put it there to kind of make it look more, uh, grown hide, over. Hide behindable. Yeah. Hide be, exactly. Hide behindable. Thank you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but it's there. And so we had our picture taken sadly out of focus so that oh. we, we couldn't use it, but we had our picture taken like of us hiding in the little hole there and all that out of focus makes it harder for the ring rate to see you. That's true. Yes. Oh, I should have, I should have hugged our, uh, our tour guide and said like, thank you so much for thinking of me. Um, but we did go to Hobbiton, which okay. is still standing. Uh, Wait, all the, the Shire basically? Yeah. Wow. Um, because what happened was they they constructed these little, these hobbit holes, as they call them, the little houses and doorways and stuff like that. Uh, they did construct it for the first film on this guy's like sheep farm. And, but then after the first, the first trilogy, they just kind of took down the doors so that everything was there, but it looked rough and gross, but people still took tours. 
So then when they wanted to return to it to make The Hobbit, the guy said, okay, yes, you can use my farm again. Here's the thing. You need to leave everything as is. Because so if, tour, if tourists are going to come here anyway, yeah, I mean, he was selling them anyway, mm. but I want the tourists to be happier when they come and see Got this it. place. I want them to feel like they're actually seeing well, good for the him. real Hobbiton. So thankfully, by the time Jen and I went to see it, there it wasn't just doorways and, and you know, basically sets. Like, it really looks like you're walking through It had been gentrified Hobbiton. for you. Absolutely. Yes. No question. And when you're walking around and you see these little Hobbit holes, you're just like, oh. Yeah, I definitely feel like I'm in the movie. This is very exciting. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and I guess that's the difference between Pandora and Avatar and mm. Lord of the Rings. Because if you're walking through these forests and you, and you get a general sense of of the world of Lord of the Rings. And that's something that I appreciate is because though there is a great deal of CGI in the films, Peter Jackson tried to use real makeup where he could for the the orcs and stuff and he tried to use real locations you know and when we see characters interacting with the hobbits he tries to use like forced perspective he tries to do as much stuff in camera as he can Mm -hmm. and uh and i think it shows everything about it helps the world feel so much more tangible than other other uh fantasy films that said there's still a ton of cgi like half the movies must be cgi shots yeah and it definitely 1500 shots or something like that Across and, the movie. And when you actually look at the second and third films, there's a lot more CGI in those than in the first film. Um, part Probably because the you know we're now dealing with huge armies as opposed to the first film where a lot of the fights are on a smaller level mm-hmm. and you can have just people in makeup fighting other people in makeup. Um, but yeah, when I was younger, I think my favorite of the three was the second film. And then a lot of people love the third film. But most people I knew really preferred the first. And as I've watched these films over and over, I realize I think the first is my favorite as well because it's on a smaller scale and it is everything's more tangible. Mm-hmm. You actually do feel like you can step into that world and hang out. Um, because so. there's less CGI. There's less CGI. Yeah, I got to say that uh, one of the other reasons I don't like fantasy films is because I, almost as a general rule, they are laden with special effects and typically Mm -hmm. the special effects are cheesy especially nowadays with the cgi and they because you can use cgi you you do um and it it, didn't it didn't keep you from enjoying uh clash of the titans what the original clash of the titans yeah you and i saw it uh you and i watched it uh at uh at our friend chris's place i believe wow and uh, i don't recall yeah many years ago huh and uh and that's the thing. Now, those special though that is also special, full of special effects, but it's a well, very different kind. Now we can talk about stop motion animation okay. all day if you want. This is my 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 in into loving movies was stop motion photography, the very first book I ever bought when I was a kid. We talked about this in the first time I was I believe so. on the show. Was about Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien, these guys that made these early films. And I was deeply fascinated by it enough to seek out those movies as a teenager and then other movies. And that's kind of how I got into movies. Um, but there's, it's something interesting about stop motion photography and the context of what we're talking about with CGI is that, you know, the, the com- common complaint by me and others is that CGI doesn't feel tangible. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it's there. It doesn't feel like you could hold on to it. It's like a spaceship going through space, even though it's not gra- never will be grounded somehow watching the starship enterprise in star Trek two looks better to me to me, just on a gut level, on an eye level, than something in a, in a modern, more modern sci-fi uh, like space movie where, because it just looks more like a cartoon somehow. Hmm. 
And, you know, these stop motion effects in Clash of the Titans are herky-jerky. They're silly looking. The monsters yeah. might be kind of silly. It's like you can tell so well the shots that are like, like of Pegasus that's like stop motion versus the yeah. real horse. You know, it's like yeah. very obvious. And, and the skeleton fight. Is that from Jason and the Argonauts, or is that from well, Clash of the Titans? And Jason and the Argonauts, they're they're fighting uh, seven of them. Yeah, that's okay. And that's then, the one I'm thinking of. And then no, Jason and the Argonauts, he's fighting seven, and then there's Seven Voyage of Sinbad. Sinbad okay. is fighting one. That, okay. was, that was the first time they did it, and he had to kind of up himself. I don't know if I've ever seen Sinbad. I've seen Clash of the Titans. I love but I've seen Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, but the thing is that um, that stop motion animation is almost like the go-between because it is a tangible model Mm -hmm. in a tangible fake set Yeah, that still feels like you could touch it if you could put your fingers to the screen. But a CGI effect, you can never touch it. You kind of know that it's inside of a computer and there's something that removes you from, uh, that disallows you from from engaging completely on a, a, you know, remove your, your doubts and just kind of enjoy the movie level. Which I, which I think is why uh, when people talk about the best uh, uh, CGI effects of Lord of the Rings, they tend to talk about Gollum, which makes sense. Uh, because even though you can still see it looks a little bit too clean because um, it was still the early days of motion capture. Um, but Andy Serkis is, is actually interacting with the yes, world around him. Exactly. And they are basing a performance on an actual actor. Right. And he's he's there with Elijah Wood. He's there with uh, with um, Sean Astin, and I think that does make a difference. Um, and I will say that we are getting to a point now with CGI. I just uh, I just saw the Jungle Book, the the hmm. new Jungle Book, and it looks pretty good. I mean, it looks pretty seamless. You believe that uh, that you know real life Mowgli is interacting. With this bear, with this hmm. uh, panther, with this tiger, I mean it. It looks pretty solid, and I don't. I, I mean, obviously these things don't talk, so the the lips themselves are are fake, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how much they built of of the animals themselves. I mean, obviously the kid is not in the same physical space as these animals, but uh, but maybe they used real animals elsewhere and then composited them into this. Hmm. I'm not really sure. Or they just built it from scratch. I don't know how much of the jungle itself. The fact that you can't tell is testament to the yeah. level of skill. And I feel like the new Planet of the Apes movies have been doing pretty well yeah. with that as well. Um, specifically, like, details of the face. And but that that's kind of sort of my part of my point is that the reason that I can get into Lord of the Rings is because uh, there's definitely wall-to-wall CGI in certain shots and certain mm-hmm. scenes, for sure. Battle scenes, for instance. Yeah. But there's something about the use of the CGI that feels like more organic to that scene or it's, it's like it's yeah. it's the best use of that level of cgi in any series of movies that i've seen maybe but, but that's because i haven't seen a lot because i'm not given to seeing those kind of movies but yeah. i was so drawn in I, when aubrey and i my wife <clears throat> she got sick a couple months ago and just wanted to watch these movies and so we had the extended versions hadn't seen it myself since the theater mm-hmm. so i saw the theatrical cut and then i saw just a couple of months ago the uh extended cuts and so we watched it over the course of maybe three days and the the level of quality of the cgi from the first one to the second one is very apparent Mm -hmm. 
uh, when you're watching back to back like that. It's like even the the shot of Gollum, yeah, in the first one where he's just like on kind of on the rock in the silhouette, and there's yeah. like a string of hair coming down, and he's like talking like he does. It's cool looking because of the way that like the angle and the silhouette and all this yeah. stuff, but it still feels very CGI ish. Yeah, it looks animated. Then, but yeah, but then by the time the second one comes out, and they've kind of advanced even a year, just yeah. a year, right? They're just a year. Apart. Yeah, it's just amazing how much more lifelike and realistic and believable he is. So the first moments of seeing Gollum in the second one, it's like, oh, I can't believe what they're doing is CGI. It's fantastic. But by like the second or third scene with him in it, you're not thinking about that anymore because it's so well done. But but here's the key. Okay. It's character development. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 they've imbued that CGI model with actual character and actual uh, things you can relate to, things that you have horror yeah. in, a, in a very real way. And so you're invested in the character by those second or third scenes much before you're invested in, oh, I, I got to kind of decide that I'm going to forget that it's CGI. You don't have to even do that. It's not even a, a, a willful thing. You just have done that because you like the character or like watching the character along with the rest of the characters. Yeah. It's really, really well done. Did you see any of any of the new Hobbit films? I saw all three in the theater. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I saw the second and third in the theater. And then there is also a thing. I'm sorry, I saw screeners for the, for the second two. Oh, okay. Um, I'm sorry, the, the second or third ones. Okay. Um, there is also a thing that I watched and enjoyed quite a bit called The Hobbit, uh, The Tolkien Cut. It's where, one of these uh, like fan cuts on, yes, online. Where somebody did what we all thought should have been done and took these three Hobbit films and cut them together into one like hmm. three and a half hour movie. And it's good? It's really good. Really? It's, I mean, there's, I mean, there's only so much that a person can do as far as cutting out certain types of scenes or certain types of certain bits of dialogue or something like that. You know, there's a couple of things like, okay, I'm going to like, there's a part where, uh, where the, the, the dwarves are, are going against the, the dragon and they wind up covering him in like molten gold. And that's a big convoluted scene. And the guy cuts out a lot of that. Hmm. But when, the dragon's smog uh, like comes out of the cave. He's still covered in that gold and then like shakes it all off. So you're like, how did he get gold? Yeah. So it's just one of those things that when you see the films, you realize like, yeah, he couldn't go in and take all the gold off. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just go with it. There, you know? Um, so, uh, but boy, when you put it all together, there are, there are thing there are major storytelling issues that I had with that trilogy that go away. Hmm. When you condense it and put it into one movie, like uh, like uh, Bilbo's interaction with the dwarves and feeling close to them so that by the time the third film comes along and he says, he goes, if any of you want to, you know, if any of you are in the neighborhood, come on by and don't bother knocking. It's a nice moment, except we've seen so much stuff over the course of that nine to ten hours hmm. that. I feel, and we've seen a lot of stuff of the dwarves doing something and Bilbo doing something else. And now we're watching Gandalf do something. I'm not getting a lot of them together. Well, when you get rid of almost everything, Gandalf, everything, uh, Galadriel or any of this mm. other stuff. And then you, you get rid of this dumb love triangle and you get rid of all this. <laughs> other, now it really is. It, first off, you basically turn it into the Hobbit where it focuses very much on Bilbo instead mm. of him being quite, kind of a supporting character. Um, and you see a lot of him with the dwarves now, so that by the end, you do actually believe that he has a connection with these people. Yeah, your memory of that moment at the beginning is like only 
three hours ago. Exactly. As opposed to two years ago. Um, it makes it, it yeah, uh, <laughs> listeners, if you can, you, I believe you can download The Hobbit Cut online somewhere. I did. I still have it. And, uh, and it's definitely worth watching. But here's why I bring it up. In between the final Lord of the Rings and the first Hobbit, Peter Jackson really started to started to embrace CGI, and and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if the studio insisted that he use more CGI because CGI is actually cheaper than practical effects because mm-hmm. um, you can do a lot more. You know, you're not on location so much. You can do a lot more it in a studio. It takes less time. Um, and so maybe the studio was pushing him when he was making The Hobbit to like do a lot of CGI. But man, too much. What a difference. I mean, you saw the the new Hobbit films. I mean, yeah. think of just the way it was shot. Like that is that the world of The Hobbit does not feel like a world I can step into. Hmm. Uh, whereas the world of Lord of the Rings, I do. Even in the CGI shots, I feel like there's enough real there. Whereas I feel like there's entire sequences where every sing uh, of the hobbit where every single aspect of it including the landscape is was built in a computer whereas going on that tour in wellington helped me to realize that even in a scene that is built almost almost entirely from cg they at least chose to shoot in a real location so they at least had some basis in reality and then they would build they would layer all the the stuff on top of it but at least it was built on reality Mm -hmm. um i mean and i think that's the difference between uh, that's the difference in peter jackson as a filmmaker 10 years ago as opposed to now is i think he just became too reliant on on cgi you would think even though he's very good at it you know aspects of king kong are amazing, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah, uh, you would think that uh, with the success of Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm-hmm. that he would have the clout to say, "Well, you might want more CGI, but it's not going to be Lord of the Rings." Yeah. If I do more CGI, it's going to be something else, and it's not going to be as good. And that's the thing; it leads me to believe that maybe it's not the studio pushing for it. Maybe it's that you know, the sounds the sounds mean he's he's older now. Maybe he's not quite so excited to shoot on location for a year. Hmm. You know, maybe he wants to streamline things a little bit. And uh, I don't know. And take a crap on the fans? Kind of, so yeah. angry. Well, so, so many aspects of The Hobbit is that, you know, the fact that it's three movies and doesn't need to be. Sure. Um, I remember getting angry when they announced it was going to be two movies. And I remember thinking, like, I recognize there are big aspects of this book, but two movies come on that's ridiculous yeah. they're like oh sorry everybody's gonna be three and i was like what and then the third one is it was called the battle of the five armies and i remember thinking like we're getting a little bit away from the hobbit yeah literally a book named after a single character who is known for being diminutive and humble the and now it's the armies. battle of five armies uh and i recognize that's how the, the that's how the book ends but uh i don't know it's just did you see the first uh hobbit movie in that uh f- i forget what they called the, the process but it was like, oh uh the high frame rate yeah no i saw it on blu-ray i'm so oh good uh, I, I saw it in the theater but i saw it without the high frame rate so yeah. it was normal frame rate um but i was seeing it with somebody who had seen it was seeing it for the second time the first time was high frame rate and they said it was abysmal it was horrible to sit there and watch it because it's like as everyone says it's like watching a soap opera or it's like watching behind yeah. the scenes footage everything looks fake yeah when it looks more real 
in a movie. It's just the, the basic psychology of movies. You want to be taken somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, I was so baffled by his choice to do that. And I re- and we'll get back to Lord of the Rings in a moment, but uh, it's it's frustrating now that you actually have to think in 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 terms of the Hobbit as well as Lord of the Rings. It's like it's like the Star Wars prequels. It's just like, oh, I guess it's all part of it, but it, it doesn't have to be. We won't go into it, but I, I I recently watched those again, the prequels. How are they? I liked them. Come on, I liked them. You're crazy. I'm not crazy. I I was looking at them in a different way. Okay. And I appreciated them in a different way because of that. And I I came away from it going, I can totally see and I still get and I still feel a lot of what people are saying about, have said for now over a decade, a decade and a half, how long? 1999, Uh, The last one was 2005. In any case, uh, they're still saying it and they're still dismissing it. I think a lot of people who would, who, who would sit, who might sit down with them now and try to forget what they thought about them then. Given all the CGI movies, superhero movies, mm-hmm. whatever, um, that have come between that have such subpar storytelling and such subpar CGI work and, and such subpar character development, and they sit down with those three movies, they would see it in a different way, too. If they just they just assume, okay, I'm older now, uh, I'm going to forget what the internet is saying about these movies, I'm just going to take them for what they are, adventure movies about a kid who grows up to be evil, and try to enjoy them. And you will. I did. That's how, kind of how I went into it. I get no adventure from those movies. Hmm. Not a bit. That's the thing that gets me more than anything. I can deal. I can. I feel like it. Uh, it. I feel like George Lucas loses the thread. Uh, the tonal thread. Uh, over the course of those movies. To the point which is like. The fun of the original trilogy. And, and I recognize that they don't all have to be exactly the same, but the sense of fun and adventure of those is in my view, completely gone. Um, I feel like he does not know how to write these characters anymore. Um, I also thought that he needed, he desperately needed a Han Solo type, hmm. um, which is to say, cause that is a situation where you need irony, you need irony. You need somebody at least on the outside learning all this stuff and maybe looking at it with a skeptical eye the way we are and then being won over uh, to it, you know, um, with Lord of the Rings to bring it back to that. We don't necessarily have that, but we do have four, the four hobbits who are very limited in their experience. And so while they do talk a certain way and they are not super skeptical, they are all of this. They're finding all this out for the first time as we are. And so, uh, everything is new to them just as it's new to us. And so that's okay. I I'm okay with that. Whereas, you know, if you go with the star Wars, uh, the, the, the prequel trilogy, um, you know, who do we start with? We start with Qui-Gon Jinn who already knows all this stuff and thus doesn't really need to explain it to anybody. You know, we get Anakin halfway through and he's a rather annoying little kid. So it's like, I don't want this kid to be my end point because I don't care for him. Uh, but anyway, sorry, we can move on. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to dwell on it. I mean, it almost feels like another episode because... Yeah, maybe. And I would need to organize my thoughts because I, I, I do believe that they're better than people say. Hmm. They're not I guess perfect. they would have to be because <laughs> people say very bad things about they them. They do. Um, 
Yeah. So, uh, and I'm sorry to go off uh, off the rails a little bit talking about the the, the Hobbit films, but it, we were talking about said. CG and the the difference between mm-hmm. because seemingly they're the same universe, but boy, they don't feel like it. To there me. are shots that uh, that uh, these keeps flashing in my mind. These shots over and over again. Peter Jackson loves these shots. These sort of 180 sweeping shots mm-hmm. of like cities on mountainsides and stuff, yeah. like that. and or even the battle scenes. It's like we're swooping over. Yeah. To me, those are the the least convincing CGI shots because. Well, I guess now with uh, with drones, you can get shots like that. Yeah. But generally speaking, those aren't easy. You, th- those aren't easy to believe that there's somebody seeing that, mm-hmm. much less you. You know, in that world, they're they're not. It's not a viewpoint that you can see. Does that make sense? I mean, it's once or twice or three times. I mean, yeah. it's a huge amount of hours of storytelling, and so you can have a few of those. But he, if you're sitting and watching them over three days, you start to notice that there's yeah. like, oh, here's another one of those. Um, get the Dramamine, honey. It's like. I, I don't want to, I don't need to see that shot again. Well, and when you think about it, he does such a good job in the first film of keeping everything at eye level, keeping everything from the perspective of the characters that are, that are in that scene, that when we're watching a battle scene, it tends to be at its, you know, at its most effective when we are there with Aragorn and Gimli and all these other characters and we're seeing their we see, we're seeing them fight. We're seeing them in danger. We're ser- seeing their reactions to things as opposed to, you know, now the camera's pulling out and we're seeing everything, which I understand why he's doing that. But all he's doing is is For reminding school. us that we are outside of this. Yeah. Um, and uh, although there are still a couple shots that are kind of world building, um, there's a shot in the first in the first film where the characters are are in these little rowboats and they're going through this uh, this area where there are two large statues with their mm-hmm. with their hands extended. Yeah. And I mean the statues are giant and there's a shot that passes by them that no human could actually be. Uh, you know, the, uh, I, I guess if you're riding one of the eagles, uh, you could you could do that. But um, but that shot doesn't bother me. I think because it emphasizes the majesty of that moment, and it's the majesty uh, and the awe that the hobbits themselves are probably right. feeling, even though we're they're not seeing it from that perspective. Yeah. The tone, the, it's still again a command of tone, sure. and as opposed to pulling back and seeing um, these battles, where seeing those like those shots tend not to show us. Because in the in in those battles, the most important thing for us to feel is overwhelmed. And in those moments when we're pulling back, I certainly don't feel overwhelmed. I might. It's just like, oh wow, the this other this other army is really big. I guess that's overwhelming, but it's not going to be nearly as overwhelming as if we're in the midst of it with you know Gimli, who's shorter than everyone else and is still fighting. You know, right? I think of like Henry V, the Kenneth Branagh movie, yeah. and that beautiful battle scene. Uh, that's sort of the heart of the movie. And I, I haven't seen it recently, but I don't recall any scenes that are like the God's eye view yeah. necessarily. And you f- you feel so much a part of that battle, even though it's all slow motion and mm-hmm. men, you know, bleeding and screaming in slow mm-hmm. motion. It's still very, you still feel very much like you're there. Yeah. Um, and these shots, it, it's almost like a miscalculation of sorts in terms of like using special effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, if you're going full bore on CGI, you know, uh, you know, Spielberg opened the door to, you know, we can do anything with our imag- that we see in our imagination now. Yeah. Let's just go for it. Um, but when you've invested so much of the rest of the movie with 
this wonderful character development, and then you pull out and show a sh- show me a shot that you know. Granted, the the uh, the purpose of the shot is like to add scope to the film. It's mm-hmm. like okay, you can see the wide vista of of humanity that's about to be slaughtered. Yeah, that's cool. Or you can see the 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 um, the castle on the side of the hill, whatever it is. Um, once or twice, but the fact that it's over and over again, which is my original complaint, is is that it feels like let's show them what we can do as yeah. opposed to let's show them more of the story. And so it becomes, talk about taking you out of the movie. It's like, it feels like a guy flexing his muscle. It's like, I, hmm. I don't want to, I don't need to see that to know that you're strong. Um, I don't need to see that shot again to know that you can do that shot, you know? Yeah. So I don't want to like harp on it too much because there's still great shots. Yeah. But if you're doing that over and over again in these movies, the miscalculation is that, it's almost like you've forgotten that in 10 years, those shots are going to look a little dated. That's the and if there's thing. no character development invested into that shot as well, mm-hmm. then all it is is the dated special effect. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there watching all three movies in a row over the course of three days, and I'm going, wow, this movie feels dated solely because of those wide shots of the battle scenes mm-hmm. and those shots of the, the, you know, the cities on the side of the hill yeah. that I keep referring to. So if I were to do, uh, I don't know, my own internet edit of these movies and to excise the pick and choose what I was going to excise, I would definitely get rid of at least 80% of those shots of cities on sides of hills or um, wide battle shots because they don't look good anymore. They don't feel right anymore because they're not about the character. Yeah. There is, there is, (laughs) I take a perverse type of pleasure in the idea of, of a filmmaker creating this fantastical world, but then keeping everything at eye level. Um, and only allowing us these big vista shots when a character is up on a mountain hmm. and and can see, but literally limiting everything we see to what a character would see. Um, and I feel like it, it's counterintuitive, you know, uh, to to do that. But I don't know. There's something kind of neat about it, and and it feels it would feel more lived in. Like the most, you know, I keep talking about this world that you can step into. I feel like that most when I am right there with the characters and I feel like I'm there. Like I'm when I say I'm right there, I mean, I'm next to them in the midst of battle or in the midst of discovery or whatever it is. Um, I don't feel like I'm like I'm there when we're seeing those big sweeping shots. Um, And I and again, I I, yeah, I feel like we're being negative, you know, too negative because like a handful of shots, really. Yeah. uh, You know, especially because um, and I guess in a way, uh, I feel like we're talking about the negative almost as a way of saying, you know, these are not perfect films. Uh, and, and I, it helps me to temper the, uh, the positive hyperbole that I usually t- uh, use when talking about these films, because, uh, they're not perfect. They're not flawless. Um, but they are incredibly effective. You know, these are films that, you know, they have big emotions and sometimes I roll my eyes at them, but other times I well up. I mean, mm-hmm. these are, this is a, a series that, uh, I usually well up once or twice per film. Um, and it's and it's usually exactly when I'm supposed to, you know, and I don't usually like feeling manipulated. Mm-hmm. But it works. It's is it. I feel like it's not manipulation if the filmmaker understands that this is a powerful moment for the characters and he wants to bring you in where the characters are. So. It doesn't feel like manipulation if it's earned, if it's organic and if it's earned. Yeah, we talked about this when uh, we were discussing ET mm-hmm. a few episodes back. Yeah, and I almost in a pejorative sense, I said, you know, it just feels wrong to say ET is my favorite film because it feels so manipulative. You're defending 
the right of the filmmaker to be manipulative if yeah. it's the right earnest kind of manipulation like yeah. like what a movie is supposed to do like hitchcock does i mean yeah it's every film is manipulation exactly you know uh the question is is a film every film is, is manipulation and one could make the argument every film is only manipulation but what what is the filmmaker trying to accomplish with his manipulation and how is he arriving there you know you could have a character there have been movies that i that i'm watching and a character that i don't care about and i don't know really is dying and then there's a big swell of music and i find myself having a reaction and then i was like oh no i'm just reaction reacting to the music and the context Mm -hmm. i don't care about this person that's dying i don't know them so why am I reacting this way? Like there are characters that I deeply care about in films that do die and I don't have this reaction. Uh, so why am I reacting now? It's like, oh, because the filmmaker is trying to use the music and the way he's shooting it as a shortcut to make me care or to Your fool me into thinking. I, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. He's trying to fool me into thinking I care. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't think that ever happens with Lord of the Rings. I, I think I when, you're right. when characters are having, are giving these big speeches or just these quiet moments, where I'm supposed to feel connection. I do. I genuinely feel that. And then he, he's trying to, I feel like Jackson and the actors are trying to underline that this is an important thing. Um, you know, uh, so many, so many of the moments that I tend to well up, uh, in response to are, you know, Sam's little monologues about why he's doing this and why what they're doing is important. And the story monologue, yeah, I, oh, it's here. It's written here. It's oh, it's great. I, wrote it I down love too. it so much, and it's because yes, he's telling, he's kind of underlining the theme of the films, and he's sort of talking to us. But you also come to realize this is a thing that Sam has has probably been telling himself in order to keep himself going, and the fact that he's now verbalizing it to help Frodo keep going is powerful, mm-hmm. you know, and so. Uh, you know, not every bit of melodrama, not every bit of, of theme declaration uh, is a bad thing. Because how often in life do you tell do you find yourself saying to somebody else a thing you believe and a thing that keeps you going? And you realize, and I do that sometimes, and I realize that if if this were a movie, if there were a camera pointed at me right now, some of, somebody would roll their eyes and be like, "Oh, they're just coming out and saying it." Yeah, sometimes you got to say it. You know, and and those moments feel feel real to me for the most part. I'm glad that you brought up the uh, the story monologue, mm-hmm. uh, or I guess I did, but you reminded me of it. That uh, because I think now that now that I'm thinking of that scene, it is the closest the movie comes to tipping its hand in terms of oh, these are a bunch of guys making a movie about a book, you know, or yeah. based on a book. Um, and I'm a cynical guy. I, I, that's not the right word. I'm a. I always have a part of my brain, and I can't help this. You're probably the same way. Mm-hmm where I'm analyzing the movie as well. I can't just fall completely into it. Sure. And a moment like that in a movie, I, I should describe the moment uh, better. It's like toward the end of the second one, right? Yeah. It's, it's the monologue that made the second film my favorite. Oh, so he's, he's, uh, explaining the fact that, you know, we're, we're on a journey, we're on a story and the stories that you love Frodo are the ones where you should just read it. Yep. 
Okay. <clears throat> and then I'll have something to say about it. And I, I will not sell it as well as Sean Astin does, and we'll talk about Sean Astin in a moment. But uh, he says, it's all wrong. By all rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only, uh, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the, sh- and when the sun shines it will shine out the clearer those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something even if you were too small to understand why but i think i do understand i i I know now folk in those stories had lots of chances chances of turning back only they didn't they kept going because they were holding on to something that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for i gotta say that i mean it's such a beautiful beautifully written speech i don't know if it's that way in the book but that moment is it rides the line Hughes so close to that line of like we're 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 getting a little meta yeah and if it had just gone a little bit more or if the emotions hadn't been set up perfectly yeah previous to that moment it would have been like oh oh don't don't tell me I'm tell- watching a story don't have a character tell me I'm watching yeah. a story that he ins- himself is actually referring to yeah but it works so well because of who Sam is that's exactly because exactly Sam right. is is the innocent and yeah. Sam has been told these stories and he's moved by these stories and he knows Frodo has been too because he's been side by side with him his entire yeah. life. And now they're living one of these stories. And we're watching a story where a person is aware of the fact that they are living a story that they have been told, like yeah. like the ones they've been told and and loved so much as a child. And he's doing it. And so it, it it's so organic to the feel of the almost operatic feeling of of this of the story up to that point. Yeah. Meaning there are these huge moments that don't feel real, but they feel earned. This is a, a meta feeling along those same lines. It's a meta meta sort of tone or note to hit no. that is so in keeping with the grandiosity, because it's speaking of grandiosity, the grandiosity no. of these kind of stories, that it's perfect. And it's it can only come out of Sam's mouth and, and work that way. And it's because he uh, it's because he's the least qualified to be there. You know, when yeah, you think you about go. it, like, okay, so Gandalf is really powerful and he knows everything. Aragorn is, he knows a lot and he's a trained fighter as is Legolas and Gimli and, uh, Boromir, Sean, uh, Sean Bean. Then we get to the hobbits who they are not necessarily qualified to be there, but Frodo has volunteered. Mm-hmm. He, vo- he's volunteering for a thing that he knows is beyond him. He can't visualize it, but he knows the ra- the ramifications partially because he's close with Gandalf and Bilbo. There are Merry and Pippin, yes, who naively jump in because they don't know what else they're what else to do. But there's something about Sam who is he's the most fearful of the bunch. And at first he gets assigned to watch Frodo. Right. Uh, but there comes a moment when he decides when he has a moment, he has the chance to turn back and just let Frodo go off on his own. It's the end of the first film. It's the moment that makes me that makes me well up. Mm. He has the option. And instead, it's, no, I'm not going to do that. And he's not even necessarily in it for the big thing. He's in it because Frodo needs help. Right. And, I mean, the moment that, even thinking about it now, I start to well up. Right. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? It's and it's, a, and it's a big moment when he says it. Yeah. And there's a big swell of music. And it's just like, you can't, I mean... Sam is the heart and soul of, the, of these films. It's not Frodo. It's not Aragorn. It's not even Gandalf. Like Sam. Sam is it, um, I think. And when you look at the arc 
of his character over the course of these films. I mean, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. And him saying, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Like, I mean, again, I'm welling up now. Like how many times have you been talking to a friend who's going through something and you realize like, I I can't, I don't know what you're going through and I'm, and I can't know what you're going through Yeah, because I haven't experienced it. But what I can do is be there for you every chance I get. It's not the same. I'm not like, I cannot take your burden, but I can, I can do this. I can do a different thing. Right. Um, and it's such a, you know, one of the, and I think that's, you know, to go back to the, I don't know why I'm choosing to be negative now, but it's what the Hobbit is missing. Right. Because even though there's a bunch of these guys and they're all on this quest, you don't really get that sense of friendship. You don't get, I mean, the first film is called fellowship, the fellowship of the ring. These get, these people are all bonded together. And even though they don't totally know what they're getting in for, and the ring has an effect on Boromir and all that kind of thing. And they wind up splintered by the end of the, of the first film. There is also Sam chooses to go out to go with uh, Frodo. And then, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas are like, okay, so Merry and Pippin have been taken by these orcs and uh, bad things are going to happen to them. It's too late for us to do anything with the ring. So what we're going to do is we're going to go track down these orcs, m- kill them all, and we're going to save our friends. That's literally the only thing we and can do. And we might die trying. And we might die trying. And we might fail, but it's the only thing we can do. You know, And, in, and I think that's what works so well about these films for me is that yes these characters are all trying to do these larger things these huge things they're all trying to accomplish they're trying to win a war but i think they also recognize that that by focusing on the individuals you care about sometimes that is how a war is won you know when we look at world war ii which obviously world war ii had a heavy influence on lord of the rings i mean saruman and the orcs and just, I mean, all of that is basically Nazi Germany. Like it's a very, like that imagery and, and Peter Jackson does well to play into that as far as the way the orcs march and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But anyway, you know, when you watch, watch the great movies about world war two, um, there definitely is a, a sense of camaraderie. You see it in saving private Ryan. You even see, I mean, you definitely see it even in the, in the title of band of brothers. Um, and just this thing, this thing of like, I can't win the war on my own unless I find a way to kill Hitler. Uh, I can't win the war on my own. My platoon, my my battalion, we can't even necessarily win the war on our own. The most I can really do is keep moving forward and try to keep an eye on the people that are directly to the right and left of me. That's the most I can do. And if we all do that, we can win if we all do that. And I feel like that's that's very much what this film embodies um, at its best. I mean, and and maybe that's why for so many people, myself included, now the first film works so well is because by by focusing on these nine characters instead of like large armies, it really um, it really emphasizes it. It lays the groundwork for that camaraderie, and it really comes through. Um, which is another reason why the extended cuts are so effective. Because we are allowed even more time to not merely establish the world, but establish relationships. It's funny, that just the irony, I'm thinking, that we talk about The Hobbit, it's like, if only it could be shorter. Yeah. And the fact that The, Hob- that the Lord of the Rings feels better when it's longer. Yeah. 
is a mark of all the things we're talking about that are so good about it. Yeah, because that's the thing. When you make The Hobbit shorter, the connections between characters become clearer. But when you make Lord of the Rings longer, it allows you more time to make those connections because these characters are going to be apart for long stretches of time. One thing that fascinates me, and it took me a long time, it took me longer than it should have to realize it, that at the end, when Frodo, the ring has been destroyed, Frodo Mm -hmm. wakes up, and the first thing he sees is Gandalf. Now, we've been seeing Gandalf for the last two movies, and we realize that Oh my gosh, this is the first time Frodo has seen him since Gandalf like fell off that bridge. That's right. He thought he was dead. And I'm sure the minute he sees Gandalf, I'm sure he's thinking like, okay, well, so I'm dead, right? Right. Um, and that, and yes, then he sees Gimli, sees Aragorn, he sees all of this and that's very now exciting. Like, They're all dead. Yeah. It's like, oh wow, I guess I we didn't, thought that. I, thought I guess we didn't make it. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like the end of Lost. Spoilers. Mm. Um, but that's the thing is, is. You know, and it's not necessarily a flaw with these films that uh, I always thought it would be interesting. There's something about these movies that just lend themselves to like uh, fan edits. I always thought it'd be interesting to edit together all of Frodo's stuff. So you only ever see his scenes. Hmm. So then, yeah, you go a long stretch without seeing Gandalf or anybody else. It's just him, Sam and and Gollum for a long time. Chimes at midnight thing. Yeah. False oh, death. that'd be amazing. Yeah. Chimes of Midnight, by the way, is getting a Criterion release this year. I heard that. Which I cannot wait for. I, I saw it. I watched it on YouTube. Don't, oh, boy. Yeah, it's hard. That's the only place I could find it at the time. Oh, yeah. I, I saw it first on v, a muddy VHS many years ago, and then they played it at LACMA recently. Mm-hmm. I um, wanted to go to it. And, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful film. I've been wanting it to get a nice... It wasn't even really released on DVD, not in this country. Um, and I've been waiting for a really nice release of it. And then I was hoping that like Kino or Criterion would would jump on it. But I always... But Who's with, doing it? It's Criterion. Oh, good. And so it's just like, oh, man, it's going to be cleaned up. It's going to look beautiful. Yeah. Oh, and it's going to have a lot of great special features. Mm. Maybe they can do something. Maybe it was just my YouTube experience. But, but because of the way Wells had to do it, obviously, it's all yeah. looped. And so that, that kind of takes you out of it in a way that I don't know is easy to repair. I'm, I, I wonder if there's a way that they can take his loop, the looped sort of studio sound of all the voices and mm. make them feel more like they're coming out of those people. Uh, it's definitely, it, I think it has to do with the sound mix. Um, and I, and I know that, um, cause he basically had to do a lot of his movies that way. Mm-hmm. Like, I, did you ever see his version of Othello? I did not. Okay. It's great. Um, and I think I saw it on VHS and then I saw a really nice DVD copy of it and which was put out by a company I don't even really know about, uh, might've been facets actually now that I think about it, but I'm not sure. Um, and they did a whole, like a whole sound redesign. Nice. They re recorded like the orchestrations and then they tried to do a different mix so that the voices, eight of which are Wells himself doing (laughs) other people's voices. Yeah. Um, and they try to make it so that it fits a little bit. The better. king of low budget movies. It's bizarre. Yeah. Given how he started. Yeah. Him and, uh, Cassavetes, uh, yeah. such different filmmakers. Um, anyway, that was a fun tangent. Uh, but yeah, it would be interesting. I would like to, to recut these so that we see, okay, here's Frodo's storyline. Here's Aragorn's storyline. And then maybe just those two, uh, where, uh, because Aragorn's storyline does eventually intersect with like Merry and Pippin, or maybe, maybe it actually doesn't. I don't recall. 
I think Mary and Pippin wind up being se separate for a good. So maybe that's three different stories now that I think about it, um, which is exciting. Um, let's do it. Let's do it. If I had the time, let's quit this right now. Okay, and start on that. We'll st we'll stop this, and then once we finish it and watch it, we will we will return. So we'll hang on, one second. Okay. we'll be right back. All right, that, that was, was great. Awesome. That I can't was amazing. We actually did it. I know. Good job, everybody. And you um, did all the voices. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's true. You will not pass. I know that's not the line, but that is how I delivered it. Um, there's only one voice I can do, which is Gollum. I can do Gollum's voice, which is very exciting. You want me to ask you to do it, don't you? No. Do it. No, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> but I, I can do it, but it makes me uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, because because mic. in very Yes, no question. Um, but uh, it's basically, I started with Meatwad's voice from Aqua Teen Hunger Force sure. and then made it a bit more dramatic. And there you are. You're a Gollum's voice. You got voice. it. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, so I, I'm not really sure where to go from here. I guess we can talk about individual because we've been talking very much, very broadly about, about the, the about the the films. Um, and that's the thing. There's not much we can say that other people haven't said. So, uh, so aside from getting into the the the, the themes of the films, which we will in a moment, uh, let's talk about some some of the specifics. Um, and I'll go ahead and and single out more than we have already. Uh, Sean Astin. And not only is, is Samwise written very well, but he's played remarkably well. Um, and just uh, with the right amount of humor, but the right amount of, of melodrama and earnestness and nervousness, like Sean Astin really got that character. I, I think almost everybody got their characters, but I think he really understood how important Sam was. Uh, sorry, Samwise. That's not, that's a terrible joke. I'm sorry. Um, he, uh, I think he really understood how crucial the character is to the themes of the movie, to selling the reality of the movie, and to being an audience surrogate. Um, and uh, I was always fascinated how in in two thousand three, because there was definitely a push for this. Uh, I, I I genuinely believe that he should have been nominated for su su mm. supporting actor, even though I'm not necessarily I don't necessarily think the character is supporting. I think he's a lead, but if we're gonna thinking stupid Oscar terms, right. he's definitely, they would think of him as supporting. And I thought he should have been nominated in 2003. Um, cause I think it was a really, like I said, like not only does he carry Frodo, he carries the film. Does he carry the movie? Um, I mean, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, everybody carries the movie, but yeah. definitely like anytime he's on screen, uh, you see him like, you know, the scene with him fighting the spiders is, is pretty horrifying. Um, and you see him come into his own uh, his arc is more so than Frodo's. Like his arc is is ours. You know, we start off not really knowing what to expect, being perpetually in in awe of things, being scared, feeling overwhelmed, feeling inadequate, and then slowly but surely, the more comfortable he gets with what he is doing, the more comfortable we get with the world that we're seeing. Until finally, it's like, all right, this spider's uh, really scary and giant, and it's going to kill me, but I have a job to do. Yep. And in that same way, it's just like, all right, this scene is uh, overwhelming, but we need to press on. So I feel like he's, it, it's tough to say he carries the film. The film doesn't necessarily need carrying. Um, and everybody does their, does their part. But I think thematically and emotionally, I think he, he does carry the film. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure if I'd say he's my favorite aspect or maybe even not even necessarily my favorite character performance, but I think he does deserve to be singled out quite a bit. Who do you, who do you relate to the most in the movie? Would it be Sam? Uh, let's see. 
who do I relate to the most? Uh, it definitely, probably him. Um, but also, I mean, there are a number of characters, almost all of them supporting that I really respond to. I really like John Noble who plays Denethor. Yeah. Yeah. Who seems like a very Shakespearean type mm-hmm. of character. Um, and back when I worked at Blockbuster in Studio City, John Noble was a uh, regular really? renter. I didn't uh, know that. And he apparently has he has a real affection for middle of the road 90s thrillers, mm. <laughs> which made he me loves laugh. Breakdown. First off, Breakdown is not middle of the road. Though right. it does take place on the road. Actually, Breakdown is an awesome movie. I yeah. Take that back. And it has J.T. Walsh being awesome. awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's more stuff like Double Jeopardy. Which I don't even know. It's not good. It's got Ashley Judd in it. Oh, um, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, Kills but her I husband remember... twice or something like that. What was that? Kills her husband twice. Yeah, yeah. Or, Ugh, terrible film. Um, but I do remember... Uh, so I did take the time to mention to John Noble that was like, hey, by the way, I just want to let you know that I'm a big fan of your work in Lord of the Rings. I think it you took a character that could have been purely negative and you made him really sympathetic but never never over overly so and he was like and he was very he's a very nice gentle guy and he's like he goes oh thank you that means so much Mm." (laughs) it's like oh i just want to hug this guy um so i really like what he's doing i think he does really great work um because just like any other character who's doing something that you go why are you doing that that it's still understandable why he's doing it there's no reason why in his worldview uh, given all that he knows about what's going on that he wouldn't yeah. do that yeah when you look about when you look at it that like you see so many characters going against their natural instinct to be afraid and to despair and they keep moving then you realize like there is going to be despair there are going to be there will be people that look at the world and look at what's happening and think, we can't win here. And that level of despair, and I know that I, and I looked up the character like as far as in the books, and there's a lot more elements to him that he's, he's basically driven mad with grief. Mm. Um, that when he loses his son, he just, he falls into actually a deep depression. And that depression leads to despair, which leads him to just kind of give up on everything. Mm. Um, and that sounds actually really interesting. And you do get some of that. Um, the character's not super sympathetic in this, but I think he's more sympathetic than one would immediately assume, given how the character's written. I think that's John Noble. Um, like I said, the character seems Shakespearean, a character who has tre- the tremendous ability to be brave and and powerful, but just is unable to do that because of his, his personal flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I really respond to his performance. I'm a big fan. We were talking before... Uh, before we start recording about Deadwood and how much we enjoy the character of the Doctor, yep. played by Brad Dorff. I was just and thinking of him as well. Brad Dorff playing a character named Grima Wormtongue. Uh, how could he be nice? Exactly. He can't be nice. And there's just such a... He, he got that character 100%. The idea that this guy is just a manipulator and that he just whispers into your ear and the way that he says stuff and the things that he says are just so filled with half-truths, but he seems to know exactly what you need to hear mm-hmm. to get a, a certain type of reaction out of you. Do you think this is one of those sort of overlaps, like the, the Inklings, is that what they were called? The C.S. Lewis and and Tolkien were pals, and they'd hang out and talk about their stories with each other. Hmm. Oh, you didn't know this? No, I knew that, but I yeah. didn't know uh, what... Because there's Wormwood, which is... Oh, that's true, yeah, yeah. And he's kind of doing the same thing. I guess that's true, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... Wormwood, Wormtongue is all I'm trying to say. yeah. These guys ripping worm, each other off. Worms, yeah. Uh, but the character is just played very well. I, was, I, I wanted to write down some of his uh, 
some of his dialogue here, but then it would require one of us having to say it the way he does, which mm-hmm. is not possible. But there is one moment when, uh, when Miranda Otto's character is saying like, leave me alone. And he just like, like a snake, he just goes, Oh, but you are alone. Like, it's just like this really, mm-hmm. he just finds a way of just cutting to the core of whoever he's talking to. And it's a really, really strong character. I it's really very like similar. Him. I not similar, but it kind of reminds me of a, of a more human version of, I guess, Gollum himself. It's like yeah. if Gollum could actually get his hooks into somebody that would listen to him, yeah. it would turn into something like that. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is it is implied, uh, as the film, as the, the series goes on that, uh, that Grima was a really intelligent guy and a really trusted advisor who just like Saruman and everybody else just kind of lets his mind get poisoned by Sauron until his talents and his abilities are used in a terrible way. Right. Um, and I feel like, and so, yeah, there's a, and when you look at him, you see that he's very pale. He's very like, and he just looks emaciated gross. And you feel like, Oh yeah, there's a, there's an element to that, that like anybody who engages with the ring or with Sauron in any kind of meaningful way, it will just rot. They will just start to rot. Like you look at Gollum, you look at, at, uh, Grima and then, uh, there's a wonderful scene in the extended cut where the mouth of Sauron shows up uh, at the end of the at the end of the uh, third film, where Aragorn and the and the the good guys are standing outside the gates of Mordor, and then a lone horse comes out, and there's this rider whose eyes are covered. The his whole face is covered except for his mouth, and oh, he yeah. is the mouth of Sauron. He's the guy who is there to like negotiate, but more specifically, just to like make fun and and to discourage and that sort of thing and and they they shot his mouth in a very specific way they they added like cg elements to his mouth so that it looked bigger than it should be but they also made his teeth look gross they made his mouth constantly bleed and it looked like his his mouth was rotting and i remember um i forget who said this but on the commentary they say that that literally that being the mouth of sauron it's literally like the word, the very words themselves that you have to say are poisonous or they're acidic to the point or they're just they just cause whoever's saying them like it causes the mouth itself to rot because what it is saying is so in, uh, incredibly toxic. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea that just like that, again, if you are engaging with Sauron in any way, in any way it starts to just deplete you yeah. in some way. I think that's such a great... Soon you're just a puppet. Yeah. And I, and I, it always fascinates me that Saruman, played by Christopher Lee, you know, who's this very powerful wizard, is is simply described as a puppet. Like, he's a very powerful right. guy, but even he is just a puppet. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, that's fascinating. But, um, so, I was, I'm trying to think of other... I always responded to Gimli... Um, I think they make him the butt of the joke too often, but I also like that he's still extremely uh, skilled at, at murder. It's not murder if it's war, just killing, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's a dark man. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there are certain, whether it be in like video games or whatever, um, there are certain character archetypes that I will always respond to. And I always tend to like the guy who carries an ax instead of a sword or a bow and arrow. People love Legolas. People love the guy with the bow and arrow who can do all these amazing things. And part of him is like, give me the guy with the axe. I don't know why. I always prefer that. Always wanted to be a lumberjack, did you? It's, uh, yeah. I didn't want to do this in the first place. Um, 
by which I mean podcasting. Oh. Um, so I couldn't be a lumberjack, so I decided to start three podcasts. Um, and you did it. But uh, so, yeah, I really like Gimli and I'm a big fan of John Reese davis as an actor. Um, I like some of the, a lot of the things that he does. Um, and then, you know, when uh, when returning to this over and over again, um, it's kind of obvious, uh, but. I love everything Ian McKellen is doing. Like he gets the character and he gets the world to a degree that very few other people do. Um, he knows how to sink his teeth into every line. And I think he also understands that in the same way that, uh, that Sean Astin seems to understand that his character is sort of the thematic center of the, of the film, uh, of the, the series. Um, I think Ian McKellen understands that, my job is to sell the world and the mythology in a way that very few other people, a very few other characters do, except for maybe Kate Blanchett's character. Um, and so, and I think he does. And, and he ma manages to do it in a way that seems surprisingly humble and matter of fact, while still with a fair amount of majesty. Um, so from a, I think all the actors do a really good job, but I, as I think those are the ones that really, really stick out to me. Are there any that uh, resonate with you? I regretted asking the question as soon as I asked it oh, okay. because I, I thought, well, he's going to ask me now. But I mean, I give you plenty of time to think of it. I think that the answer is Aragorn. Of course, mm. I relate to Aragorn. No, that's not true. Um, <laughs> I mean, if I relate it to anybody, I think it would, I don't even know the character's name, but it's the son of John Noble's character, right? The the one that, or, or am I mixing up two different? Well, there, he has two sons. Two sons. One one is Boromir, right? Yes. And Boromir dies. Yes. The and other one is Faramir, played by David Wenham. And he's the one who's like blonde guy who comes back and he's sort of a sad sack because his dad doesn't love him. Yes. That's who I relate to. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's a sad sack, but he's also like, no, a, he's a great, he's a great warrior himself. Yeah. But anytime he's in the presence of his father, yeah. which is how I feel in front of almost any authority figure. It's like, Oh, what mm -hmm. do I need to do to prove myself to you? I don't even know. Yeah. I just, I'll just kind of stand here and take your, your beratement of me yeah. with your eyes. And what's interesting is that in the case of Faramir, He's already done plenty to prove his. I know. To, to, to show his quality, I believe. Is That's the, how I is feel a lot of the times. Yeah. That you've already done plenty, that don't, but nobody recognizes your brilliance. I've killed so many armies. Oh, wow. With a single bow. Um, no, I, I think that I don't want to overstate it too much, but I think I do feel that way a lot of the time where I feel like, what do I have to do to prove to you that I'm as good as I think I am? Yeah. And you're not listening. I think maybe that's when I say good, I don't mean good as a person. I just mean right. good at something. And, you know, now that you mention it, I think that's one of the reasons that I like Denethor and Faramir so much uh, as far uh, in regards to this story is that so many characters bring their own personal issues to this, to, to the to the proceedings. Um, but their issues still have to do with the with the war and with the world. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Aragorn is like this reluctant leader who who is a natural leader and everybody keeps looking to him as a leader but he doesn't want to accept it because he's afraid that he will fail and when when a king fails it he fails big right um there goes the kingdom yeah whereas i feel like denethor and faramir specifically you know and then you got you know Gollum and his but his stuff is his issues are directly related to the ring Denethor and Faramir, they have these, you know, Faramir has like father issues. Denethor has like, you know, gr uh, grief issues, uh, depression issues, but also he's just a, just in general, uh, a disapproving father, or he has very specific priorities that Boromir fits and Faramir seems not to. And 
that is a situation that would still be even in time in a time of peace. Like that would still be the case. And the fact that that neither character is able to put that aside mm -hmm. because there's a war going on, but that it in fact affects their ability to influence the war. Right. Is something that I love because mm -hmm. that is something that is true is that it, while most people in, in times of war and times of adversity are able to put aside their petty, not even petty, but their, their less important their personal issues, problems. their personal problems. Most people are able to do that, but some people are not even in the midst of this obvious problem. They just cannot. They can't get past certain aspects of themselves. It's a, honestly, it's, as I think about it, just an out of context, like this relationship, it's a kind of a tried and true trope of, of like, um, you know, family dramas mm -hmm. down through film history. Uh, I, I keep thinking of uh, ordinary people. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's like the, you know, trying to gain acceptance. You know, it's the older son that was the more beloved. And yeah. you even, in that case, you feel responsible, he feels responsible for it in some way or, um, you know, there's others, but because it's in this movie and because it's surrounded by so many other, uh, what I guess could, could be considered sort of tropes or yeah. cliche type, uh, uh, conflicts, but it, but it's, it's imbued so much with, with character and personality and operatic level of, of, uh, uh, like you got to get this done now, you know, yeah. immediacy that it, it, it allows you to not worry about it so much as a trope, but it kind of is. I mean, maybe in all of the Lord of the Rings, it feels the most like a, like a cliche mm -hmm. in terms of relationships, a family relationship. It's like, oh, the father who doesn't like the younger son because he's not the older son. Yeah. Um, but all that aside, I, I definitely feel like the more I think about it, I relate to him. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't, don't want to depress anybody, but that's just kind of how I feel. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people that relate to the more noble characters. And I think that's what, that's part of the power of Lord of the Rings is that you see a lot of people that are really ill-equipped, ill-equipped. Yeah. You know, it's, Unprepared. it's, it's, I think when you look at, at some of the best movies that have kind of an outsized premise, whether it be star Wars or Lord of the Rings or something like that. Um, I think one of the reasons that we relate to the, that we like these movies so much is because the heroes seem so ill-equipped to do the things they're doing. Luke Skywalker is like this farm boy who doesn't know how to do really anything. Then he's there with Han Solo, who is like morally ill-equipped, ill-equipped to do any of this. Uh, one of the reasons I love Jaws so much is because when it comes right down to it, three guys go out on the boat. One is a shark expert, the other a shark hunter. One of them is a guy who's afraid to go in the water. And yet it falls to him to do, to, to win. And, and eventually he does, you know, and he tries everything he can. It's like, all right, I'm going to try and stab this thing. It's like, all right, I'm going to try this thing with the tank and maybe it'll, it'll blow up. Okay. It has not. So now I got to shoot this tank as the, as the shark is coming towards me. Like, it's just, you know, and if it were Quint that was shooting at the, at the shark, then we're just like, all right, it's going to be fine. Even if it were Hooper doing it, oh, it's going to be fine. But no, it has to be the guy that is most like us. We're just like, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be a good chief of police. That's all I want to do. Right. Uh, and nowhere did I think I was going to have to almost be eaten by a shark, but I guess it's part of the job description. And, and now it is. And when it comes down to it, it's like, and nobody else is here to do it. Yeah. So it has to be me. 
you know, and it's the same with Luke Skywalker. It's the same with, with Frodo and Sam and, and all of these people that, you know, Aragorn is the one that is most Aragorn and Gandalf are the people that are most equipped to do this. And then there are certain things that Aragorn has to get over, but he has the, he has the ability to do this. These other characters don't, they probably don't have the ability and they slowly but surely get the ability simply by recognizing they need to do this. And I feel like that's why these films resonate so much is that people, I think everybody can find a character in here and say, that's me. Um, and maybe it's one of the reasons why I never respond to Legolas or Elrond or Arwen. Like the They're elves, too good at what they do. The elves are great at everything they do. Right. You know, and so... Uh, They're so just innately noble. Yeah. It's not fair. More noble than John Noble, in mm, fact. Way um, more noble. So, yeah. Uh, from a, So, from a character standpoint, I mean, I, I, I like all of these characters in it as an ensemble. They all just fit together so well. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then, uh, you know, as far as are there are there any specific sequences or it could be an entire battle or it could be a, a moment. You know, are there any sequences in all in any of the three films that you really respond to? I can't to? even answer that question. Okay. I, I, there's too much. There's too much story, for goodness sake. I kept thinking about this like yesterday and the day before. I'm like, how do I talk about this? There's just too much story. I wouldn't yeah. know how to how to narrow that down. I really don't. Yeah, it is. It is tough because we are talking about all three films. Um, I mean. You know the 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 part with the uh, the Balrog is mm-hmm. pretty powerful. Yep. Um, especially because, well, and I I like that. Uh, <laughs> there's something kind of. It's not egotistical. It's just it's Gandalf stating what is a simple fact. When he, they 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 hear the shaking in the cave. They see all the goblins run away. And like, okay, something's not something not great is happening. And they're like, what is that? And he says, it's a Balrog. It's like a demon of the ancient world or whatever it is he says. And then he says, very matter of fact, like this is beyond any of you. He doesn't say us. He says you, which is just like, you guys need to go. Cause you're all going to die. I might be able to do something, but you guys cannot. Yeah. And then it leads to a very powerful moment, you know, where he, stands alone and they do a really great job of designing that Balrog. Yeah. Um, it is very frightening. Now, my first association with the name Balrog is the Mike Tyson type boxer in street fighter two. No idea what you're talking about. Yeah. That's a generational thing. I'm sure. I guess, uh, pop culture generations. I mean, um, so that scene is really powerful. Everything having to do with the spider for me is, of course, because uh, I, as listeners know, I am scared of spiders and they should be as well because spiders are monsters. Um, you know, because when you think about it, all they really did with the, the Shelob character is they took a spider and made it bigger. That's all you got to do. They didn't change any element to the spider. It's just a spider. It's just a big spider. And it, and how nightmarish is the concept of a big spider? Okay. Now imagine that that spider is actually, it ha- it's the same temperament. It's the same uh, level of poison and that kind of thing. Except now it's small enough to crawl into your bed. See? Spiders are terrifying and everybody should be, a scare- should be afraid of them. So, um, but that sequence is, is very powerful for me. I mean, Helm's Deep is pretty great. Like it's... It's weird that uh, that there's a much bigger battle going on in the third film, but Helm's Deep seems particularly rough in the, at the end of the second film. I keep thinking about, you know, I'm digging through the, the movies in my mind, mm-hmm. and like it seems like the, the moments that stand out 
aren't those kind of moments, those big giant moments. Yeah. It's like little, almost little asides. Like I'm thinking of the moment really kind of, kind of moved me in a way and in a, thoughtful way I guess at the end correct me if I'm wrong I can't remember exactly when it is I think it's toward the end of the third movie when uh, they're all back at the Shire mm-hmm. and uh, Bilbo is there too right he's super old uh, he, he they're back in uh, in Rivendell the, the elf place okay they're not uh, Bilbo does not go back to the Shire okay at some point Bilbo and Frodo are sitting next to each other after all these adventures mm-hmm and they have a little conversation, and Bilbo just kind of says, "Can I?" I don't think he's aware of yeah. the entire adventure that Frodo's just had. Yeah. And he says, "Can I just? Can I just look at the ring one more time?" Yeah. He knows exactly what that ring is about, mm-hmm. and he knows how torturous it is to even see it, much less hold it again. And he's finally free of it, mm-hmm. but he wants to hold it again. I'm like, I, I, I re- talk about relating to characters. I guess I relate to Bilbo yeah. in that moment. It's like, oh, that. That thing, I just want that thing one more time. Just give it to me. Uh, no, I don't even have it. it. Might be a lie as far as Bobo is concerned. Okay, I get it. You don't want me to have it. That's cool. Well, and it's also, it's debatable exactly how much Bilbo knows. Like, he might not know it is the ring, but he definitely knows the impact it has had on him. On himself, yeah. And it is, you know, gave him unnaturally long life so that now that he's out of it, he looks super old. He ages to the right. point that he should. Um but yeah, and it's just this, it's like, he goes, oh, do you have that old ring that I gave you? He says it so no. nonchalantly, just like you did. Yeah. And it's like, and like we know what the ring is. And yeah. He knows what the ring is, but yeah. he's like trying to play it off like it's no big deal. Yeah. If he gets to see it or hold it again. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, a nice moment. And then there's also this, you know, this uh, towards, that's the thing. So many people have a problem with all those, with the, the multiple endings, but it, Again, like when you, if the key is to look at it, and I've said this, you know, I feel like I've said this a million times on the on Battleship Protection and stuff. But like, if you look at this as all one film, a twelve, a nine to twelve hour film, depending on which version you're watching, well, then you don't want to just stop it. You don't want to just cut off. Like, you need like we just watched a, a, basically an entire war. Yeah. And we need to come down and see the, the emotional ramifications. Like when you see the four hobbits back in the Shire and they're at the, at the bar and everybody else is dancing around yeah. and they're, the four of them are just sitting there. That's the other moment I was thinking of. They should be happy. Yeah. But instead they look at each other like you're the only ones we, the, no one here knows what it's like. The four of us yeah. are the only ones that have seen this. It's the, it's the best years of our lives. Exactly. It's, we it's talked about this. you know, veterans yeah. and just. And it's very powerful, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, and so I'm trying to think of like other really powerful moments. I'm well, looking this, at the. Uh, oh, oh, right. Yeah. OK. Sorry. Go on. Well, this, the I don't know if you call it a sequence. It's basically one of the plot strands, you know, the, the, the journey with uh, Frodo, Sam and uh, Gollum. Yeah. And I, I keep thinking about uh, one thing I, I kept thinking about, like yesterday was just thinking about the movies is how the difference between Sam and Frodo. Let me see if I can gather my thoughts. The difference between Frodo and Sam with regard to the ring and with regard to the behavior of Gollum. Is it Gollum or the Gollum? Just Gollum. Gollum. It's his name. Smeagol Gollum. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sam is highly suspicious from the very first moment that Gollum shows up. Yeah. And anything that Gollum does 
Sam just kind of looks at him. It's the only time we really see this side of Sam. Yeah. It's not the friend who's there to carry him. It's the friend who's there to protect him. And yeah. and that sort of rises, raises like his frustration level and his anger and and uh, and suspicion at this other guy, this character. And it's almost like on on some level, it almost seems like Frodo doesn't see the behavior of Gollum mm-hmm. to 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 be threatened by it. And and Sam is sort of in between the two, and he's sort of taking that the burden, if you will, of having to deal with these the weirdness of the way Gollum is behaving. No, but it's because um, Frodo is oh, he has the ring, and he's constantly fighting the no. power of the ring, and he knows what the ring is. Yeah, and he understands how it could pull him down, and how he how he could become like Gollum, and so. It's it's like this difference between the ways the way Sam looks at Gollum is just pure suspicion mm-hmm. because he sees sin, if you want to call it that, yeah. or degradation. I think is the word you used earlier in the conversation, and he sees that and he doesn't want Frodo to yeah. become like this, and so he's literally being this, the go between, the stand in, yeah. the stand between. What's the word? The stand in, the, the the barrier, the in between, between you know what Frodo is now yeah. and what he could become. Frodo, on the other hand, has compassion yeah. for Gollum in a way. I mean, he's annoyed by him as well. He wants, he almost wish he would go away if only he didn't know where the black door is or whatever it's yeah. called. Um, but he lets him along for the ride. But he gets to understand Gollum because he understands the ring. And so he has more compassion. So it's like this. Let me just read this. It's, I kind of wrote this down in trying to understand it yesterday. Oh, here it is. Um, you know me. I always go to what I wrote because yep. it's always better. Um, Frodo understands Gollum's behavior because he knows the burden of the ring, but Sam has only mistrust for him, meaning only mistrust for Gollum. Sam is good, protective, but is innocent and only sees evil flatly in black and white. The ring and all the temptation that pulses from its heart, crippling man, is also the window through which one may see, understand, and minister to the weakness of others. Yet sometimes, this is the sort of the other side of it, is that uh, sometimes like Gollum, the weakness cannot be redeemed because they're just too far gone. But the fact that Frodo, if the story ever required it, would actually possibly come to the rescue or the aid of Gollum because he understands him, even though he knows he's a vile creature who's like completely decrepit because of the ring, he understands why that happened. Um, Sam would not do that. Sam would take the first chance he has to kick him off the cliff yeah. or to stab him in the heart. Um, but they both see the same thing. They both see a broken creature, yeah. almost irredeemable, but from two different vantage points. And it's interesting to me that Sam being the innocent, which we praise his innocence, and he's yeah. the only one that can deliver that speech because he is innocent. Frodo it has been changed and sees evil in a way that makes him understand a person like Gollum. Yeah. That's just a fascinating dichotomy to me. Well, it's the, the relationship that the three of them have is so fascinating. And there are times when, you know, because their journey is so notably different than everybody else's, like there's not a lot of action on their journey. There's not a lot of adventure. It's just the three of them walking along, dealing with the ring itself. Um, but that, that gives you the, the, the freedom and it gives you the time it gives you, as if you were the room, to really explore the dynamic of the three. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it, the, Frodo and Sam looking at Gollum, it's, I'm certainly not the only person to, to say this, but like, if you want to look at it from one particular view, like you said, sin, and we can definitely get to that in a moment, but uh, 
think about how, think about like the parents of a drug addict, you know, they want to love this kid. Like they want to be there for, for him and support him. But they also recognize that he's not a hundred percent him anymore. He is very much under the influence of this drug or the lack of it. And, you know, and I've known people who have had relatives that have been, been into drugs. I've had some low level experience with that myself, not the drugs, but being, but loving somebody who, who does. Um, and it's very frustrating and very heartbreaking because you want to be there for him, but you also recognize that like this person, you know, uh, there's a line in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is like, you can turn your back on a person, but you cannot turn your back on a drug, uh, mm-hmm. because that drug will do whatever it needs to do. Um, you know, whether it be like, oh, uh, we let, we let our son back into our house and he stole all of our stuff, you know? Um, and so with Sam, it's, it's, it's purely that, you know, not only do I care about Frodo, but we have a job to do and Gollum is running it completely counter to that. Like he might help us, but he's helping us destroy the thing that is keeping that he is right. obsessed with. Like this help is only going to go so far. Like even I know that. Um, so he's innocent, but he's, there's definitely a, an awareness. There's an open eyed awareness of what Gollum is capable of. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but at the same time with Frodo, like he doesn't, like he knows it's weird. His eyes are open to exactly what Gollum is going through, but in a way there are also blinders to what Gollum might want underneath all of it. It's just, there's and such so the, complexity the two together. That, keep Gollum from doing what he wants to do. Yeah. Either one apart from the other would probably have a different outcome in terms of what Gollum, <laughs> Gollum's survival. But it is interesting because ultimately it is Frodo's ability to treat Gollum like a person that starts him moving back to Smeagol instead of Gollum. Hmm. And to the point where he's saying to his, his alter, you know, his, his other personality is his evil personality saying like, go away and never come back. And then ultimately says like, Oh, I'm, I'm free. Now I do think that they kind of rush that idea, but whatever. Um, it's still a very powerful moment and it's all because somebody loved him and refused to, and refused to look at him only as Sam saw him. But, and so that's a nice moment. And that, that speaks volumes about like treating somebody as an, as an equal, treating somebody as another person, seeing the good inside them. Um, but what's interesting is that there comes a moment when Frodo actually does save Gollum's life where Gollum is, uh, or let's say Smeagol. Smeagol is, uh, taking fish from the forbidden pool or whatever. I don't know, whatever <laughs> crazy stuff they incorporate. It's like, oh, I guess this pool, this pool is forbidden for some reason. And Faramir is going to have his guys kill Gollum, knowing full well that uh, that Frodo has the ability to say, no, no, wait, wait, no, he is a friend of ours, please don't kill him. Uh, and so Frodo does say that, and so they apprehend Gollum, which makes him believe, now he doesn't think that Frodo was saving his life, he thinks that I've been betrayed mm. by Frodo. And the minute that happens... Back to Gollum. It's it's from Smeagol back to Gollum. Like, it doesn't take really much. I mean, I guess it does, you know, a sense of betrayal, uh, even if it's for his own good. And I'm sure if, if, I'm sure, I believe Sam at some point does say, it's like, you realize that Mr. Frodo was just trying to help you, right? He goes, no, yes, absolutely. 
and just like total lie. He's he is switched completely over. Like there's no. T- I feel like from then on, there's no trace of Smeagol. Right. I feel like Gum will put it on from time to time, but it is clear like I have been betrayed. There's no. There's no room for you in my life anymore. There's just what I can get from you, which is the ring. And so I feel like it's interesting because we see him being re- uh, sort of seemingly redeemed, right. but because of what's what is there underneath the surface, the the moment there's even a slight sense of betrayal, it's all the way back. And and you do get this feeling that that Gollum is just too far gone. And that's such a sad thing to think about, you know? It is. And it actually, after Aubrey and I finished the movies, we were kind of talking about it. I told her that one of the, one of the things that I wish was different about the story, I don't know if what it, how it ends in the, in the books, but in the movie, obviously Smeagol or Gollum carries the ring to his death. It's like, he finally gets what he wanted, but it's only at the expense of his own life. It's like, so, but I'm, I, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to actually see Gollum, redeemed yeah and uh because of what that speaks to and what 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 the movie itself the whole series seems to be pointing toward which is redemption um or at the very least the destruction of evil um but in meeting out that giant theme the destruction of evil um you know along the way you see people rescued from evil yeah and he is rescued as you pointed out just a, a few times like he becomes free you know he's yeah. he's he's smeagol again um but the fact that he as a movie i guess the image the tying together of his desire for the ring and the destruction of the ring which is like the main goal coming together at the same time yeah. down in the pits of the you know the, the lava of mordor um feels right as a story but on the other hand it feels wrong for that character in in the grand scheme of things because he, he he's the most decrepit character in the entire story yeah Outside of maybe Worm Tongue, yeah, um, or Sauron, obviously, yeah. Um, but as far as the characters we kind of follow, he's the most far gone. Yeah, to, he's a, definitely a pathetic character. Yeah, and he's he's totally given himself over to his lust, mm-hmm. his his overwhelming desire for this thing that's going to give him more power. Though he doesn't use it for power, he just uses it for its beauty, and it's you know he just you can't not have it. But to, for the character that's the most far gone to be the one that's redeemed at the very end feels like it would be awesome to see. Yeah. Um, especially in this grandiose operatic kind of story. Yeah. Um, because it would it would really hit it home. Um, so I'm, I was kind of torn. I told Aubrey I love this entire series, um, a trilogy, but I, f- I feel a little cheated. Like that would be the one thing that I would have a, a major story conference with. Uh, if I was making this movie, I would be, what do we do with, with Gollum? Do we really kill him? Wouldn't the audience want to see this guy go back to who we showed him at the beginning of Return of the King, which is like a, an actual human? Yeah. You know, let's let's let him go back to that. And I think, honestly, I recognize that that is the thing that we want. But I actually... I like the 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 reality of that. That like thematically, of course, I want Gollum to be redeemed, but not everybody's going to be redeemed. Like in this in this world and in this life, not I don't necessarily mean in a spiritual way. I mean, some people are just too far gone. And I would love, narratively in life, I would love someone to just finally say like, "Hey, wait a second, I'm doing all the wrong things. Oh my gosh, what have I done?" 
and then they go back to they, they try to do the right thing even if even if the right thing is you know if, if Gollum were to purposely sacrifice himself in order to stop the ring then it's like okay there's a little bit of there's a redemption there but there isn't he just you know there's a in the first film i believe uh or maybe the set no it's the first film uh gandalf says he goes he says you know uh, Gollum might still have a, a a part to play in all of this well Gollum destroys the ring hmm. but he doesn't mean to like yeah. the part he has to play is pure selfishness is 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 to be himself yeah and that it what what ultimately it comes down to i think is that from an, if you look at it from a different standpoint, a different thematic standpoint, the ring destroys itself. That its 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 whole thing is, I'm going to manipulate people to protect me at all costs. But in doing so, uh, you know, Gollum and Frodo are fighting over who gets to have this thing. Nobody is sacrificing himself at this point, right? Um, and that in the end, that that is what that evil cannot sustain itself because it's all selfishness. Hoist it's all manipulation. Yeah. That's just like this, the very same thing that will, that has protected it for so long and that has kept it from being destroyed is the exact same thing that will allow it to be destroyed. So mm-hmm. thematically, I do like that because yeah. I, because it, it comes from uh, talking about the prequels. The one thing that I really like about the third film is when so much lava in these third films. I know they, it's it's a very uh you know and it's there's lava at the end, at the end of Congo. Um I wanted to pick oh another gosh. movie that had nothing to do with this. Um but there's a there's a, a a scene at the very end of of the of Revenge of the Sith where um where Obi-Wan and Anakin are are fighting and Obi and it's at the end of their lightsaber fight and uh Obi-Wan is has a higher position and he says he says, you should, he goes, you should give up Anakin. Anakin, I have the high ground. And he's literally saying like, he's saying to his friend, if you keep doing this, you're going to get hurt. So please don't. Mm-hmm. He is actually showing that he cares for this person that he, that he's been fighting for, uh, fighting against. And Anakin simply responds with, uh, you underestimate my power. And then he jumps at him. And then uh, Obi-Wan cuts off like a bunch of his limbs. A bunch of them. And then he uh, lights on fire. <laughs> so it's all pretty terrible. But there's something, there is something about, I'm, I'm always fascinated by this. There's something about the, the inherent blindness of evil. Because when you are focused only on yourself and getting what you want, you can do that for a long period of time. But eventually, when you're only focused on yourself, there are a lot of things you don't see. Even if it's the very fact that Obi-Wan has the high ground. I will have to work harder if I'm going to win, but he's, but Anakin is so focused on my power. You underestimate what I'm able to do. Even if common sense says I'm not going to win this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that same way, like the ring and just, and Saruman and like Saruman has a moment where he's so focused on, on building up my army and you know the fires of industry and all this kind of thing and he's just like tears down so many trees that he fails to remember that oh right trees are alive and they do have defenders you know there's a and treebeard says like that wizard should know better Hmm. and 
but so, like there's just there's a lot of blind spots not to imply there are blind spots when your person is good obviously but the very nature of evil is it's so self-focused that eventually it will miss something and and, and that sees that or Gollum becomes fatally aware of that yeah and just you know and and at the end you know and and Frodo also almost dies right. as a result of this you know and to me, as much as I would love Gollum to be redeemed, enough other characters are redeemed that, ha- that were exposed this, to the ring. The like we have, that- we have Theoden, the king. We have even at the end with Grima, we have him start to be, uh, start to hear the truth about who he used to be. Right. Um, this is in the extended edition, by the way. Uh, and then Saruman, who has basically given himself completely over. Saruman is not allowed any, any uh, redemption. Um, and so we get, I think we get enough actual redemption. Uh, yeah, I, I was, while you were speaking, I was thinking of, of course, of what you were saying. Mm-hmm. But I was also thinking in, uh, on my own comments. And the truth is that a little tragedy goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And the movie as a whole is a triumphant movie. Yeah. Um, full of redemption. Uh, f- full of death, obviously. Yeah. But also full of redemption. And to have that particular character never make it to redemption yeah. is a tragedy because we get to know him a little bit better. We do see who he, what he looked like before he became Gollum. Um, and we do see him uh, jubilant at the prospect of now being free of Gollum for just a little while. And yeah. so we, and we can relate to that. It's like, Oh, I, that, that thing that I do, you know, that I, I that's been thorn in my side, you know, I'm, yeah. I've gotten rid of that. And then you fall again. It's like, that's Gollum, you know, you, yeah. Gollum is you. Um, and to, to, to see at least one character who can't quite pull himself up to the bar. Yeah. And then takes that thing that's the, the thorn in his side. Yeah. And takes it all the way down to the, the burning lava to his death. Un, he's, he's unaware of his own death even. Yeah. You know, he's like falls Like right up until smiling. the end, he's looking at the ring and just so happy exactly. he has it. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll give you Gollum. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, and when you think about it, uh, there is a song at the end of the second film called Gollum's Song that I have the lyrics here. Hmm. They play It plays over the end credits. Okay. And I actually think I'm going to play it here. Um, but before I do, uh, I'll be putting it in after we record. Um, but before I do, um, I want to talk about it a little bit. You'll see it in the in the quotes that I put on uh, on your notes there that. This song, I think, does such a great job of, sh- of giving us a window into Gollum's attitude that, that when you look at how he responds to the ring and how so many other people respond to the ring, like it's, again, it's so self-focused, but there's a reason that he feels so betrayed. And it's because you just start to feel like everybody's, a, he starts to feel like everybody's against you. The only person that's in, the only person that's in favor of me is me. I'm the only one that that can protect myself. Nobody else understands. And it's just this constant mantra in his mind of like, the only person that understands me is the precious. Uh, and for a moment, I thought that somebody else might get me. But you know what? I was wrong. And just going back to this mentality of I was wronged. And it actually reminded me of The Great Divorce, which I mention all the time, mm-hmm. uh, the C.S. Lewis book, where it depicts hell in a very specific way um, where the characters are there by their own choosing. They have chosen something else aside from uh, besides happiness, you know? Um, and there's a, a, a character who talks about kind of peeking in at Napoleon's house 
uh, down in hell and Napoleon is just like going back and forth and back and forth, like pacing back and forth and that he looks really tired, but he won't stop pacing. And all he's ever saying is like, it was the Russians fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was this person's fault. Mm -hmm. It was this just over and over again, literally never taking responsibility, always putting it on other people. And that he's actually tired now, but that rage and that fury just keeps him going. And it's what keeps him in hell. And in that same way, uh, you know, Gollum's suspicion of, of other people, uh, and his complete trusting of the thing that is actually destroying him is like, that's, that's the tragedy, but you realize it's something that he, yes, the ring has a great deal of power over him. So there is that, but it's something that he's ultimately doing to himself. And what I like about Gollum's song is that if you actually look at the, at the, the lyrics, it's, it's just somebody who, who just feels, betrayed but clearly is just saying this over and over to themselves and there's like there's a lot of self-pity there and it almost when you look at these lyrics it seems like what somebody who is in hell which i know is a concept we don't like to necessarily talk about what somebody in hell could be saying to themselves over and over again Hmm. you know and it's very sad but it also you know so i'll say some of the lyrics here um you know where once was light now darkness falls where once was love love is no more like it's all very it it seems like a like a honestly it seems like like a the poetry that a high schooler would write you Mm. know when you're feeling very self-focused and you're and you feel like nobody understands you you know uh you know, for all the lies you told us, the hurt, the blame, and we will le- and we will weep to be so alone. We are lost, and just it's it's about there. There's a tragedy there. There's a sadness there, but there's also a real sense of of being wounded, but also focusing very much on that wound more than anything else. And listening to that song and looking at these lyrics and the fact that it is called Gollum's song, you know, there's a there's a mournful quality to it, but it also, I feel like gives us a lot of insight into how Peter Jackson sees this character. Hmm. Um, and that event that he was always going to, he was always going to be destroyed by the ring. Um, and that in the end, even though he was shown kindness and that he was seemingly betrayed, like somebody in this mindset is not going to forgive. Right. You know, all it takes is, and this is something that, is tough for me because I have a hard time forgiving people once I feel like they have hurt me because in the end I find myself thinking like, yep, I knew it. It was just a matter of time. And I was wrong. I was right to not trust them in the first place. I gave them, I gave them one chance and that's the end of it. It's a very, very dangerous way of approaching relationships. Um, and it's one that is, is isolating and again, self-focused pass fail. It's, it's very pass fail, no question about it. And there's just no room for, for actual love. There's no room for forgiveness in that. And I think that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this depiction of, of Gollum is you see that there was good in him. There probably is still good in him. But in the end, he is choosing the manner of his own destruction. And it is that that keeps him from accepting forgiveness, accepting love, and, and extending it to other people as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a really... Everything about the Gollum character is fascinating. And actually, I will go ahead and play that song right now. So I'll see you in a couple minutes.
was fun right well actually it's not fun it's a very sad song uh so okay so we need to we need to wrap this up because i don't want this episode to be as long as an actual extended cut lord of the rings (laughs) film um so looking at uh, (laughs) everybody we have really noisy chairs sorry about that i need to go in and fix them i apologize it wasn't me so occasionally it'll sound a little obscene um so so i wanted to look at uh a lot of these a lot of these quotes i tried to put these quotes these are from various from all three films but i tried to put them in a very specific order when we are faced with evil the the evil of the world or the evil that's been done to us or a spiritual evil and the idea that we so seldom we we so frequently feel like we are going to be overwhelmed by it and the evil could be you know something bad has happened to us nobody did anything to us it could be it could be loss, it could be betrayal, you know, which is something that somebody does. But, um, and it just feels like there's no, there's no good in the world and that there's nothing we can really do. Um, and that the forces against us are going to win, even if the forces is inside us as, as is with Gollum. So, um, so there are a number of quotes here that I want to read. Some of them we already have, so I won't read them, but, um, but, uh, and I want to, like I said, I want to put these in a very specific order of arc. 
So we will lead with a quote from Bilbo where he says, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road and if you, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And I like that because there's a, there's an acknowledgement that the world is dangerous, but this is not a dire warning. It's more just like, Hey, just be careful out there. Um, there's a line from Frodo where he says, I know what I must do. I'm just afraid to do it. It's just, I'm afraid to do it. And then there's this, there's this wonderful moment. I think it's maybe Elijah Wood's best moment in the film. It's in the third film where Sam is, they're on the volcano now. Sam is trying to comfort him the way that he always has. Like, hey, think of the Shire. Think of all mm. this. And at this, and in the past that has given comfort to Frodo. It no longer does anymore. And he says, he goes, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water or the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark with nothing, no veil between me and the ring of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. Uh, I love the line. I'm naked in the dark. There's just so it's such, there's so much vulnerability there. I'm, I have no, not only do I not have like a shield or any armor, I don't even have clothes. I'm 100% exposed and it's dark. I can't even see what's coming for me. Right. And I have no way to protect myself. Like there's just such a, it's, it's pure vulnerability and pure weakness in that moment. Um, and I'm sure there are moments when whatever, whatever it might be, whatever adversity we might be facing, we might feel that like in those moments, we cannot remember anything good. We just feel like we're just naked in the dark. Um, so moving on, uh, there is that wonderful monologue that Sam has about the, the stories and the fact that, you know, you have the chance of turning back, but you keep moving forward. That's what heroism is. Um, there's an exchange here between Frodo and Gandalf where Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to find it. And that is an encouraging thought. And that idea is fascinating to me that like in this particular moment, it, if we, if we take for granted that there are in fact other forces at work beyond evil, then wherever you are right now, whatever adversity you're facing, you were meant to face. And it's very scary. And it might seem like bigger than you, but you were meant to face this thing. And that is an encouraging thought. Uh, And the fact that Gandalf is encouraged by the fact that Frodo was meant to have the ring is, it brings us tremendous comfort as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so moving on into this idea of, of doing the right thing and acknowledging that this is what, I, what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm scared, but I have to keep going. I can't turn back. Uh, we get a really wonderful line from Theoden, who says this shortly before he dies. He says, I go to my fathers in whose, co- in whose mighty company I shall not now feel ashamed. And that's a wonderful moment because the character has talked about feeling like he does not deserve the legacy of, of his very brave father mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and then a couple more, uh, Gandalf says at the end, I will not say do not weep for not all tears are an evil. Hmm. It's a wonderful moment. You know, there's nothing wrong with grieving over your circumstances. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with, with acknowledging what you've been through or what you are going through or even what you will go through. Um, it's not a, it's not a bad thing. Um, and then lastly, Gandalf says, in the midst of battle, when things are looking kind of bad, he says, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. 
the gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it, white shores, and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. <laughs> I like the phrase swift sunrise. Um, so, you know, um, and then I, I have a number of Bible verses here uh, that, we're, that we'll read. I'll, I'll probably throw some of them to you since I just read all those quotes. Um, but these are, these are about... Um, these are about bravery and because to me, that's ultimately what these films are about is like good versus evil. And so much of what, what makes good, good. And what makes evil, evil is that good is willing to push past what is comfortable is willing to, you know, it, it, you know, we see Sam realizing like, all right, I got to fight this giant spider. I don't want to do this. Uh, if I had my druthers, I would not be fighting a giant spider, but I guess I have to, you know, I have to keep moving forward, always moving forward. Like that's what real bravery is. And, you know, and whatever it is that you might be going through in this life, um, you know, I've, I've said that, uh, I'm going to be going back to school, uh, starting in June actually. And, uh, I don't know if people have been paying, I'm not talking about a God's not dead situation, but I don't know if people have been paying attention about what's been going on on campus. It hasn't been just as far as general tone. It's not been super friendly to Christians. No. Um, uh, you will be, you get called a bunch of names. You might, you, you know, it, it might not be a situation where your professor like docks your grade or anything like that, but it could just be fellow students. And while I don't think, I don't think I'm going to be in any trouble or anything like that uh, given what i've been told about the master's program at ucla there's not that many types of conversations it's more just everyone's like okay i want to get my master's so we don't have time for politics or religious conversations right now let's just focus on the movies so i don't think it's going to be a problem for me but it is something that i worry about that i'm going into this situation right in the midst of an election year which mm -hmm. is going to be fun it's yeah. just so much fun um but that has more to do with my politics as far as my actual faith uh, maybe I'll be in a position to talk about it. Maybe not. I'm not sure how much talking I'm going to be doing while I'm there, but, um, but yeah, it's a thing that, uh, you know, it, it, it did happen a little bit at my old school where I was in a position occasionally to have to defend, uh, my faith. And, uh, and it's very scary and I don't like doing it because I want everybody to like me and think I'm very smart. And, uh, and yeah, so, now, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not going to get killed. There are Christians in other countries who, by simply being Christian, can be hurt and killed or jailed or whatever. And that's actual bravery. Um, but bravery could also be like starting a conversation with somebody that you'd ra ra really rather not to simply because it's going to be awkward. You know, it could be that. Or if somebody asks you a question, being completely honest about your answer, even if you know that that person is not going to be happy with what you say. You know, it could be any of those things. Um, so we have a number of, of Bible verses to read here. First is Deuteronomy 3, verses 6 through 7. It actually might be more than 6 through 7, but I wrote it down wrong. So 31. 31, 6 through something. So go ahead. Oh, me. Yes, I'm throwing it to you. I'm not paying that strong attention. Sorry. Um, be strong and courageous. Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 7, possibly. Uh, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. 
and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. All right. And I'll do uh, 2 Samuel 10, 12. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. We'll go with 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 32, 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. Uh, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And then lastly, here we go. The official verse of more than one lesson. Jeremiah 1, verses 17 through 19. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So, the term strong shows up here a number of times. Courageous shows up a a few times. And the idea of of God being with us, not abandoning us, do not be discouraged, do not be afraid. Um, that's all easier said than done. Um, but I will say that, you know, really do pray about these things and, and everybody's life is different. I don't know what your life, I don't know what bravery listener. I don't know what bravery in your life looks like, but, uh, but if you feel overwhelmed by something, if you feel fearful, either as a function of your faith or not, or just in, in life, um, you know, just know that, that, uh, God is with you and, you know, and if you want an actual visual of this, feel free to look at Lord of the Rings, look at Frodo, look at Sam, look at Mary and Pippin, look at these people that are ill, that are genuinely ill-equipped to do the right thing, um, and really should have just stayed in the Shire. But if they, but if they had, things would have turned out differently. And so, you know, hopefully, use that as a as an inspiration to go out and do the thing that you know that you should do. And uh, it can be very scary, but that's okay as long as you keep moving forward. So life can be a big, uh, life can be a giant spider sometimes, but, uh, but we got to go and we got to go and fight it. So, okay. I think we'll leave it there. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking about Lord of the Rings. Good comprehensive discussion, and of course, I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. Exactly. But uh, but yeah, thank you everybody for uh, for listening. You can weigh in uh, on the post at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow us on uh, sorry, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. Uh, and let's see. And then please do not forget to check out the International Christian Film Festival, which will be in Orlando the last weekend of this month. Uh, and uh, I, I I look forward to seeing you there. So in the meantime, thank you once again for listening. Robert, thank you for being here. You got it. And we'll get you next time. Bye.